0: Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Fighting and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Succeed and their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt to so grab a shovel and dig. There was a somewhat brief but interesting time, I think, when the New York Times had a public editor, someone who was supposed to be the reader's advocate, someone who is independent, who could challenge the newspaper on behalf of, hopefully, readers' interests and then publish their thoughts and findings in that very same newspaper traditionally many newspapers had a similar role usually titled in umbud's person uh but i think no one outside of journalism uh, ever actually knew what that meant <laughs> so so i think it was uh, perhaps a a good move that the, the new york times called it the public editor um of the series of public editors who went through the new york times uh the one who i would say caught my attention the most and who i uh followed the most was Margaret Sullivan uh from the very start i think she made it clear that she was there to actually do what the job required and to hold the most well-known newspaper in the world to account for issues that readers were concerned about uh after spending a few years there she left for the washington post to become a media columnist uh Uh, where I, again, continue to follow her writings with with great interest. Um, And she somewhat recently left The Washington Post. And I would say, I guess, in a bit of kind of breaking news, uh, we can note that assuming there are no technical problems uh, in getting this podcast out on time, uh, she has just announced that she will now become a weekly columnist for The Guardian, uh, which is very exciting as well. Also, a few months back, she published an excellent new book called Newsroom Confidential, which is, I would say, part memoir and part analysis of what ails journalism and what the journalism profession should be doing. Uh, As I've noted here, I've always found her to be one of the most astute commentators on issues that journalism faces today. Uh, And even as she's become quite well known worldwide for her views on media, uh, unfortunately sometimes it feels like, uh, Few of the media, the the legacy media organizations, even the ones she has worked for, uh, are necessarily listening to her advice. But I still think it is incredibly valuable, and I do think that more media folks, uh, both on the business and on the journalism side, should be listening to her. So I am very pleased to have her on the podcast. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks for that intro, and uh, I'm really happy to be on the podcast. Cool.
0: So. Um, let's start by talking about the book a little bit. And um, I'm curious in general why you structured the book kind of the way you did, in which it's, you know, it's it's part memoir, part, you know, this is what's wrong with journalism.
1: Right. I guess uh, I started out thinking it would be a pretty straight memoir, you know, in a narrative style and kind of chronological. But um, I guess, you know, I I guess I thought I had some stuff to say. That I wanted to say, and that the time was such, I knew I wanted to bring it out before these past midterm elections. Um, And I had a message that I wanted to make front and center. And I actually just thought it would make the book more interesting. You know, I've had a reasonably, reasonably interesting journalism career, particularly the public editor stint at the New York Times is unusual, but um, I guess I. I actually thought that having a bit of a manifesto uh, along with the <laughs> memoir might make it you know just a better book
0: yeah and and i I think you know it flows very well together, obviously because you sort of you know you talk about you know your your entire history in in journalism which is is very interesting, but that gives you the sort of perspective. To, as you're talking about all those things, you're highlighting the different issues that you've seen and the different problems and some of the challenges that, that you saw the, the profession as a whole face over your time. So I, I think it, it, it flows well to have both of those things.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I spent most of my career in local journalism at the Buffalo News, my hometown paper, which I joined as a summer intern. And then, you know, it's like I hung around for a long time. I guess they didn't know what to do with me. They made me the editor of the paper, top editor, um, at which a job I did for, for 12 years. And so, you know, when I was writing this Washington Post column about what was going on in the news media, it's there were sort of two things I ended up writing about a lot, which was the demise of local news, mm-hmm. particularly local newspapers, uh, which are in terrible trouble and it's sad. And also, you know, what was happening in media related to the uh, coming of Trump and all that that implied. So there were these two very, very different themes, but they both had something to do with, oh, well, were, were we actually going to have a democracy or not?
0: <laughs> yeah. And and I think both are, are worth exploring a little bit. I, I wanted to, to, I mean, you... You know, when you were at the Buffalo News, right, it was at that time owned by Berkshire Hathaway, which I believe it still is. Uh, It's
1: not. It's not. It's it's not. not, Oh, no, no, that's right. It went to Lee Enterprises. Enterprises, But the whole time I was there, it was basically owned by Warren Buffett. You know, Berkshire Hathaway equals Warren Buffett uh, in in, in, in that sort of shorthand. Um, But yeah, Buffett was the chairman. And, you know, our names appeared closely together, close together on the masthead. But, you know, he never really picked up the phone and said, oh, I'd like to endorse Hillary Clinton or whatever it might be. Right. Um, but, you know, I mean, I met him many times. I went to the, what do they call it? Woodstock for capitalists. Uh, oh, yeah. thing in, in, Omaha. in Omaha. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I definitely had a, a, a working relationship with him when I was editor.
0: Yeah. And then. Um, obviously the Washington post is owned by Jeff Bezos. So you, you, you have some experience working for, for billionaires at this
1: point. I do. Yes. (laughs) They're an interesting Uh, uh, breed.
0: (laughs) That's one way to put it. Uh, and, and I mean, did you interact much or at all with Bezos? I mean,
1: I, I met him, uh, early on and he welcomed me. I, 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 can't remember what the occasion was, but it was soon after I came to the post and he knew my work because of uh because of the new york times there was some mm-hmm. reason that he i can't remember exactly what it was uh but he you know he he knew who i was he welcomed me we chatted a little bit but we did not you know i mean i wasn't in management i was a humble scribe right and uh we didn't have any real reason to talk with each other
0: right and um you know, so one of the things, and you talk about this in the book, is you know, uh, um, about the sort of threat to local journalism, um, is that, you know, a lot of the local operations that the ones that are still in business at least are sort of getting picked off one by one by what is often referred to as vulture capitalists, mm-hmm. and the biggest most well known in the space being Alden Capital. And and that's what you had said there was talk about um the Buffalo News being sold to Alden Capital, which I don't think has happened. It hasn't
1: happened. As as uh, it, I guess it was really all of, all or at least a good chunk of Lee's, Lee Enterprises' papers were mm-hmm. being <clears throat> considered, uh, or, you know, Alden wanted to buy them. And that hasn't come to pass. The, the Lee board, you know, managed to reject it. And that's where the whole thing stands right now. So that was a relief. I mean, it's not great to be owned by a chain. You would rather be in a situation like the Boston Globe or the Minneapolis Star Tribune, which are owned by uh, rich people in their own cities who I think it's just a better situation. But Lee is not as bad (laughs) as Alden would be, (laughs) and that's a sure thing.
0: And so for for our listeners who maybe are not as you know, up on, you know, Alden Capital Mm -hmm. and kind of what's going on with them. Do you want to give sort of a quick description? Because I think it's actually really instructive and really useful for people to understand what is happening to a lot of local newspapers. Right.
1: So, you know, a lot of these big chain owners are really private equity. They're really hedge funds, or at least Alden is. And Mm -hmm. they buy up newspapers because even though newspapers are threatened, they are still pretty profitable. Or can be made profitable. Well, how do you maximize those profits? This is why they're called vulture capitalists, right? They're sort of picking at the carcass of these of these uh, newspapers. Um, although some of them aren't carcasses because they're still alive and well. But they're, they're alive, not particularly well. But anyway, uh, you know, how do you maximize the profit? How do you strip mine, basically, on as these papers are struggling to survive? Well, you reduce staff. You reduce staff that seems like it's unnecessary. What, where can you find these people? Why, my goodness, here they are in the newsroom. Um, <laughs> you know, the reporters, the editors, the photographers, the designers. Uh you shrink and shrink and shrink and you save on your payroll and then you become more profitable. Um so that is kind of what Alden does. And they make money from it. And, you know, it's it's really sad to see because these are not widget makers. They are actually a really important part of their communities for the most part. Unbelievably, there's many of them, and I would include my old paper in this, are still doing great work, important work. And um, they ought to be allowed to survive and thrive or be helped to thrive um, in a new in a new economic situation. And I'll just here's part of my short course, which I'll keep it really short, but <laughs> the reason that newspapers are failing, like people will say to me, "Oh yeah, well, it's no wonder newspapers are failing because you guys are horrible or you know, you do bad journalism or something." But the, you know, the reason that newspapers are struggling is that print advertising, which was the lifeblood of newspapers for a very long time, went away. Not entirely away, mm-hmm. but it you know, Craigslist came along and digital advertising came along and Google and Facebook came along. And all of a sudden, you couldn't any longer be what Warren Buffett, uh, he described newspapers in a, in a monopoly market as functioning similar to an unregulated toll bridge. So that, you know, <laughs> hey, if you wanted to get your advertising message out, we're right. going to tell you how much that costs. And that worked really well until there were other ways of getting your message out, like direct mail, like the internet, like Facebook, um, and like Craigslist. And then the whole thing fell apart. And so newspapers were really, really profitable, um, right through the nineties and beyond. I mean, we're talking 30% or more profit margins. And then that all went away.
0: Yeah. And. Well, I'm I'm gonna get on my own soapbox a little bit, where like one of the things that I've talked about a bunch about, you know, sort of the fall of newspapers, I think fits with that. Um, But one of the arguments that I've made, and I, since I have you here, I'd love to get your Mm -hmm. response to it, is is that I think to some extent, and I totally understand why and kind of the reasoning behind it, was that the publishers believe that they were in the the news business. And I think that the actual business and the business model behind newspapers was actually that they were in the community business and that <laughs> they were able to bring together the local community in a way that nobody else could. And that mm-hmm. opened up the the business side of being able to advertise to that community. And so I think the real challenge was that was, you know, what you described with Craigslist and digital advertising and direct marketing and all these things is accurate, but part of that was because the 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 community that advertisers wanted to reach was now reachable in all different ways. And that there were all of these other services out there that built community and that sort of undermined the sort of community link that newspapers provided before.
1: Yeah, I think that's very well observed and absolutely true. And, you know, I mean, I think that journalists want to see themselves and their employers as being strictly in the news business. I do think that their bosses, their corporate bosses, like the publisher and the circulation director and the advertising director, you know, may have seen it a little bit differently, but I mean, there absolutely was a time and, you know, I'm old, but it was in my lifetime easily uh, when, you know, like my parents got two Buffalo papers every single day and, and so did everybody else on the street. And so there was this kind of sense of like what you're describing of this community that was in part formed by the fact that you were all Taking in the same information. Now, there's a downside to that, too, which is that the kind of the gatekeeper mm-hmm. function fell to a very few number of people and they tended to be uh, establishment white men who were in charge of this stuff. So if you happen to be someone other than that, you might not have much of a voice. And so, you know, obviously there's a there's a there's a another side to that whole thing. Right,
0: right. Um and, and you know, that's part of the reason why, like, you know, when the, you know, when the internet came about and there were all these opportunities and I was certainly among them and certainly in some ways took advantage of the fact that, like, anyone could have a voice. I mean, I was a, a nobody, you know, and I was able to set up my own site 25 years ago and, and, and build a following. And I don't think, you know. I I didn't have the 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 background necessarily, and I I don't know that I ever would have been able to find a, a job in traditional journalism, um, and yet I was able to create a voice and 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 mm. and, and you know and and build a you know build a a following, following sounds weird, like a weird term, but. <laughs> well, wait, let's be
1: specific. You have built a cult. <laughs> we know that. That's true. <laughs> that can't be denied.
0: I, I, I would like to deny that. Uh, but, but, uh, um, you know, I, I, you know, and, and so it's, it's been interesting to me, especially over the last few years. And, and now let's get to, to slightly more modern times and some of this stuff where it's like, you know, I thought, And and many people did like this was a huge, wonderful opportunity because we were sort of opening up this ability for anyone to speak and to get to get past that 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 issue that you described there where you had these gatekeepers and they had a view on the world. And that left out certain voices and certainly marginalized communities or uh, less recognized communities. Um, had had very little voice, and often that also allowed for not just that they didn't have voice, but when their stories were presented, I think the, those stories were presented through the prism of the traditional gatekeepers. And I, and right. you know, one of the things that I thought was most exciting about the internet as a whole and the ability, you know, for those you know those views to come out, you know, the the responses to the 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 media and the way that they presented things as well as just, you know, uh, different people being able to, to set up, you know, put out their own shingle and set up their their own publication or their own, you know, uh, way of presenting news uh, and, and get that out there. And, you know, I was definitely in the extremely optimistic, like, citizen journalism, wonderful, all this kind of stuff. And now, like, there's been a lot of pushback on that. I, I am still at heart an optimist about this stuff, but there has been a lot of pushback because you also see how that has opened up things for people who are trying to push complete nonsense, conspiracy theories, things that are, you know, just deliberately misleading or false um, that, that it sort of created this world where sometimes it's, it is more difficult for, Readers or the public to understand what is accurate and what is true, and potentially enables them to to just you know sort of go down a path of only following the sources of of news that gives them what they want, whether or not it's accurate.
1: Um, yep. Where do you fall on that line of sort of like? Well, I mean, it's absolutely you know what you described is is true. It's the internet and the whole like news ecosystem, if you want to call it that, ha- has been democratized. And that's a very, very good thing. It's also become much easier, as you say, and much more prevalent for mis- and disinformation to circulate. And I guess the part that worries me is that we seem to lack, as it lets us look at our country, we seem to lack a an accepted common basis of truth and reality so that the people who went to the Capitol on January 6th, many of them, you know, had been sort of made or, you know, caused to believe or they allowed themselves to believe that the election had been stolen, that President Trump has was calling on them as patriots to come and defend their country. And, you know, that wasn't Really, based on it was it was nonsense, Um, but they believed it, and some of them are going to jail because of it. You know, so that's that's an extreme case, but it's it's a very uh, clear case of what's happened. I think the other piece of this that that is important to recognize is that as local newsrooms, traditional newsrooms shrink. You know, while we may have other we may have voices. Of marginalized communities, and that's a good thing, and and people who wouldn't otherwise be heard and who now have a following. Great. That's good. But, but something we're losing is the sort of um, traditional, if you will, reporting that does things like goes to city council committee meetings and actually uh, serves as a watchdog and holds public officials accountable, or does the investigative work that is boring, that is time consuming, that is labor intensive, and that may or may not result in a big explosive series, or maybe you just move on because there was nothing there. But you no longer have the people to do that as much as you did. And that to me is a terrible loss.
0: Yeah. And I, I think, you know, w- what's been interesting to me, especially over the last few years, in terms of that kind of thing the sort of big investigative journalism that's you know obviously you still have some of that coming from from the New York Times and the Washington Post but more and more of it we're seeing from sort of these new sort of nonprofit Newsrooms. You have, you know, ProPublica and um, the Marshall Project, both of which you mentioned in your book. And there's like the markup now as well. Um, Texas Tribune. Texas Tribune, another great example. Mm -hmm. Um, Though the the Texas Tribune one I think is a little bit different, right? Because that one actually is kind of a
1: geographically um, focused one. But but many of these are actually, you know, many of the new newsrooms are geographically oriented. So there's there's like Min Post in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. and there's VT Digger in Vermont, and there's the Investigative Post, which is in Buffalo. You know, they're, the city in New York City. So a lot of them are are kind of uh, geographically based.
0: But, but I guess but part of the question I have though is like, do we think that that is the is like being a nonprofit? the future of news or is like is there still the ability for there to be a, a profitable news organization that is
1: not you know the washington post or the, or the new york times uh, you know the ju- big picture the jury is still out on whether the nonprofit model can fill the void it's it my point of view on this is that it's it's a, an important part of a patchwork answer. You know, the only answer is a kind of a piecemeal past patchwork of the traditional media that you need to help shore it up. The, the big guys like the Post and the Times and the Wall Street Journal, um, you know, public radio, uh, television to some extent, and, you know, a bunch of other stuff. And all of these things have to come together in order to have a prayer of giving um, citizens, as we like to sometimes nostalgically call news consumers, uh, a chance to know to know what's going on and to have their neighbors know what's going on in a similar way, in a similar and healthy way. Not like narrow focus, we can only hear one thing, but this is actually verifiable truth.
0: Right. Um, you know, there's another aspect to this that I, I've been trying to think about a lot, and you know, there, there's sort of a, a joke that comes up where, you know, people talk about how, you know, when when they read the news, they sort of, you know, they they feel like it's trustworthy until there's a news story about something that they're actually intimately familiar with, and then they realize all of the little things that <laughs> that are wrong or misrepresented, and I, I guess there's like the the phrase like, uh, Gelman amnesia, which is like, then you suddenly forget that for any other story and you assume those are all accurate (laughs) as well. Um, and, um, you know, to me, like having been around long enough myself and like knowing a bunch of journalists and sort of understanding the process that they go through, I often see that, you know, it's true that there are mistakes that that journalists make. I mean, everybody's going to, to make mistakes along the way. Um, and for, you know, most of the mainstream press, I would like to believe that those mistakes are, you know, they're accidents. They're things where, you know, sometimes the people are not as deeply versed on the nuances of a particular issue and therefore they misinterpret something. Or, you know, there there's some detail that that they missed in the in the process and that kind of thing happens. But it feels like, whereas in the past people sort of had this Gelman and amnesia situation where they would recognize that for the stories that they were familiar with, and then they would sort of forget it for everything else. It feels like that, in some sense, is being weaponized as, as part of the sort of the war on on the media today, where people who are I don't want to say ideologically opposed, but but just you know who are mad at at the New York Times or. The Washington Post or whatever will take any story and go digging for those sort of minor misstatements or inaccuracies and use that to sort of trash the entire uh, process. And Then you get you know like oh this is fake news and and you can't trust anything that comes from the New York Times or the or the Washington Post, um, and and so. I'm kind of wondering how do you combat that aspect where it's it's sort of like the weaponization of like little inaccuracies or mistakes as as being seen as like
1: proof that the the media is just like making up stories. I guess that's a part of it is the weaponization of these little mistakes, but I actually think that there's something else going on too, which is okay. that which is that Trump and people who preceded Trump, uh, you know, Newt Gingrich and 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 others and their media allies like Rush Limbaugh or like Sean Hannity have, have been on a decades long campaign to teach people to hate the media and to disparage the media so that it's, you know, I mean, Trump said this to, to Leslie Stahl at CBS, he said it, you know, again, as he loves to do saying the quiet part out loud he said to her, you know why I do this, right? Meaning disparage the press and teach people or try to teach people that the press is fake news. So that when you write a negative story about me, no one believes it. And I I think that that is, you know, writ large, that's a big part of what's going on. So yes, it is true that, you know, if you read your grandfather's obituary, and you find out that they got your cousin's name wrong, it might make you feel like, oh, they're not as careful as they should be. But I think a bigger, the macro thing is that there's been a huge political movement to uh, undercut the legitimate press.
0: Um, yeah. And, and you, you spent a lot of time talking about this in the book, which I think is is actually really interesting. And it's certainly something that I've, I've talked about a bunch and and certainly wondered about, which is you know, this big question of like, how should the media deal with that kind of thing, right? Because, and again, this is something that you lay out very well in the book. And I, again, certainly recommend everyone read this for, read the book for all the details. But, you know, the media sort of seemed to like, I don't want to say cower, but they they, they sort of responded to the accusations that they, you know, treated Trump unfairly, by doing two things, which is like, you know, uh, again, very carefully noted in the book, like they went after Hillary Clinton uh, even more aggressively to try and sort of equalize it. And then similarly, just really try to like present everything as if there was this kind of balance to the to the other side of the story. Um, how how do you think the media should deal with that kind of
1: situation? So just to ki- kind of... Uh, dig a little deeper i think one of the reasons that those reactions occur is that the news media and journalists want very much to be seen as fair i mean it's part of the news model i mean it's part of the business model it's part of the reason that they're in this field they they don't want to be called biased and the the right in particular not exclusively <laughs> but the right has become very skilled and very aggressive about claiming left-wing bias. And so when you're being charged with something like that, you know, the reaction that I've observed is, oh, well, let's move over to the right because they think we're lefty. So let's move everything over to the right. It's like this so-called Overton window, right? Um, Right. But it's never enough. I mean, and it never will be enough. So um, this sort of performative... Neutrality of taking things down the middle that don't deserve to be taken down the middle is an outgrowth of that, um, and some people call that both sidesing. Uh, uh, you know, they're, right. you're both sidesing that. Well, you know, if you talk to a lot of you know regular people, they would say, "Well, both sidesing sounds good to me because I want to hear both sides," and and that's understandable and and not wrong. But when you equalize things that are not equal, like truth and falsehoods, for example, um, right. that's that is not actually doing good journalism, and it's not fair. So, I but I think a lot of this is that we're kind of we in the news media writ large are kind of in a defensive crouch because we've been attacked so much by the right, and uh, and so I think that's part of part of what's going on.
0: So that leads into the next question I had, which is you know you you spent. A fair bit of time at both the New York Times and, and the Washington Post, and and both of those papers, I think, have have struggled with this very question of of how do you handle those things. So I'm kind of curious in in your you know mind as as someone who was at both of those newspapers, you know, what do you think they're doing right in handling those things, and what do you think that they're doing wrong?
1: I mean, they both do incredibly a lot of really important good journalism, and they are in my mind, indispensable news organizations. Okay, so that's the basics. But their politics coverage tends to do this thing of um, false e- false equivalence. Um, and I think that there's a way to, to maybe not fix it for all time, but there's a way to address it, which is to make sort of a mindset adjustment that has to come from the top, you know, top editors even above the editors, publishers, and then certainly, you know, line editors and assignment editors, which is a reminder that we are not here to get the most engagement or the most clicks or the most digital advertising attached to our stories or whatever it may be. We are actually an important part of serving the public. And we should think of ourselves, I mean, just a thought experiment, this will never happen. But what if we thought of ourselves, as government reporters instead of politics reporters, wouldn't that wouldn't that be interesting? You know, because that actually is what is supposed to be right. covered, um, not you know the palace intrigue of the Democrats <laughs> in disarray and you know what's the latest poll say that's going to be wrong anyway, um, but rather you know how can we cover stuff so that so that regular people can be informed and make good decisions about who to vote for or how to interact with um with people in their in their communities
0: yeah and and you know, I mean, the, the phrase that I've heard and, and sort of and tend to use oftentimes with, with politics reporting is that sort of horse race journalism, you know, is this good or bad for this candidate or this party? Uh, and not so much like, is this good for democracy? Right. No,
1: <laughs> you know? absolutely. Horse race journalism is 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 endemic, you know, we just cannot seem to to get away from, and it's, so much of it is speculative. And I like to remind people, journalists that we are bad at predicting. We're very, very bad at predicting. We should stop trying to do it. But as soon as you get into sort of, well, what's the political fallout, then you're into speculation and that then you're into prediction and we're bad at prediction. So let's not do that.
0: Yeah. Um, You know, and and one of the things, and and certainly lots of people have commented on this and, and sort of the New York Times is, I guess, somewhat famous for, like, you know, every time there's some sort of uproar about this and, and claims that the New York Times is too liberal and, and uh, you know, only pays attention to the coasts and, and not in between, that, you know, a story will pop up where some <laughs> New York Times reporter goes to the middle of the country and goes to a diner and interviews like three people and, and there you have a story. Um, and- right. Usually,
1: and usually the story, I mean, at least during the post-2016 uh election was you'd go to some diner and you'd interview Trump supporters or people who had voted for Trump and you would ask them do you, you still like Trump <laughs> right and they would be like yep we like him we really do and that would be the story you know
0: yeah yeah and and i mean like i understand the general thought process that gets a reporter to that point where it's just like, okay, everyone's saying we don't understand the Trump voter, so we have to go talk to the Trump voter. But I always felt like that those stories were kind of ridiculous. And, and they are ridiculous,
1: and they also are a, often are a kind of Parachute journalism, in which yeah. you know you land in the community for about three seconds, and you go to some place that you think is representative, and you talk to some people who think you think are representative, and then you go back to New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco, um, or Washington, and you know there's too much of that. Yeah.
0: Um, so let's let's shift the conversation a little bit because you know we've been talking about kind of you know newspapers and sort of these these big media organizations. We've talked a little bit about the internet, but I did want to talk about social media because I think social media is a big part of of the story itself. Um, I think you noted in your book, very interestingly, that like Twitter became, you know, uh, an important outlet uh, for you and an important way for you to find stories and, and to promote your own stories and and things like that. Um, you know, what do you think the role of social media is today?
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, Twitter and, and other, you know, Twitter's not the only thing, of course, but for journalists, sometimes it seems that way or has seemed that way. Um, I mean, it's a way to quickly get up to speed on a lot of things, uh, a lot, you know, a lot of expertise is, is there, um, there's a lot of connections to be made, you know, it's the reason, for example, that I'm on this podcast, is that we corresponded by direct message on Twitter. Um, Although I know you're not there as much as you used to be, but um, I've made a lot of contacts there. It's a way to, you know, quickly get sourced up. Um, It's, it cannot be used exclusively or any, it's, it's one tool. You can't stop talking to sources on the phone. You can't stop going places. You can't stop reading books. You know, it can't be a substitute for these other things, but it, it has been, you know, kind of a gathering place. And um, also, I think for a lot of journalists, a place where they feel seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were, you know, they can put a story out there that didn't make it onto the homepage, that didn't make it, you know, onto the print front page, but is really interesting. And to have people who are interested in that subject commenting on it and perhaps saying, uh, well, you got this wrong, or I love this story, or something, but a way f- to get their work out there in a meaningful way that isn't coming to them in any other way. I, I think that's a huge part of it.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that that is. Um, ha- how do you feel about, you know, I think both the New York Times and the Washington Post put put in place some like social media rules uh, for their reporters. And, and I, I don't remember the details, but I do think like the New York Times ones, I, I seemed fairly restrictive to me. Uh, and, and personally, I felt like they went too far, but what's, what's sort of your take on, on that kind of thing?
1: I mean, when I was, when I was first the public editor at the Times, there was a pretty loose, um, social media policy that, you know, didn't try to kind of legislate every nuance of every post you would make or every, you know, Facebook post or every tweet. It basically just said, um, you know, don't do anything. Please remember, you know, that you, when you are on social media, you might think that you're representing only yourself, but you are actually representing the New York Times. Please keep that in mind. But then, you know, and I, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I think is useful and good. I don't really like to have things legislated like, you know, you can... You can say this about this organization. You may, you know, you may have Black Lives Matter uh, in your in your Twitter profile, but you can't say this. You know, I mean, that's insane. It, you can't <laughs> keep track of all that stuff, and you, to some extent, you have to trust the people that you've hired and help them. You know, you can certainly present best practices. You can draw some boundaries and say, look, if you do this you're going to be disciplined. But I, I would prefer to not see very, very specific rules about what can and can't be said, because I think only chaos and horror, you know, will follow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, a related thing to some extent is that you were not the last public editor of the new york times but the person who who pretty close came, though came after you did not last very long before the new york times got rid of the role entirely and part of what they said at the time was more or less that the, they thought the role itself was obsolete because social media sort of stood in and allowed the the, the public to have a voice. Uh, I, I thought personally, I thought that was ridiculous. But I'm, I'm curious, uh, as the <laughs> near last public editor yeah. of the Times, what you thought of that? No, decision.
1: no, that's that was never uh, that was. I don't even know if they believed that honestly, <laughs> uh, because it's it's absurd. Um, right e, the. Twitter, they were basically talking about Twitter. There's a lot, or, you know, maybe other publications who are running stories about the New York Times, something like that. But there's a, you know, and that is, there's truth to the fact that there's a lot of criticism out there and that people can go on social media and say, this is a bad story. This is a terrible example of the endless diner series or, or, you know, performative neutrality or whatever. But the Times, you know, ignores that stuff. They they tell their people to ignore it. And so, uh, but what the public editor was able to do is hear directly from, let's call them readers, you know, it's more than that, but readers. Mm-hmm. Take on, you know, understand there's a lot of complaints about this one thing. You know, look at it yourself. Then take the complaints to the leadership, to the decision makers, whether that's the top editor of the paper or maybe the metro editor or whatever it is. And say, Oh, there's a lot of complaints about this, and I think they're they've got a point. Please explain yourself. And then the person would explain themselves or say, Well, this is why we did this, or perhaps, you know what, that's a good point, we got that wrong. And then the public editor could synthesize that, the complaints, the observation made by yourself, and the response. And then write an analytical piece that actually, as you said at the top of this, would be in the very pages or on the very website of the New York Times. So that's – there's no comparison between that and people spouting off on Twitter because you can ignore one of them and you cannot ignore (laughs) the other one. And you can get an answer in one case and and draw a conclusion that, you know, your conclusion might be wrong – uh, and I think that, you know, was something that added to this decision. You know, sometimes they didn't really like the internal criticism. <laughs> um, but but at least, it, you know, I always felt like it functioned as kind of a steam valve, that right. at least people felt like, They were being heard. There, somebody was paying some attention. There was an effort to address it, and even if it didn't result in any big reform, at least you know you kind of let some of the steam out of the situation.
0: And and uh, and I think that is a perfect lead into the what I guess will be the final question, um, which is that as I was reading that particular section of the book about your time at the New York Times and, and sort of the role of the public editor. Uh, it, it made me think that like a site like Twitter would be really interesting if it had embraced that idea and itself had created a a public editor or a public editor type role, or maybe with sort of the amount of content on it, it would have to be a, a few people who could do that and sort of be the internal advocates for users and, and have that same sort of role where they are independent In theory, but also have access to the management or the trust and safety team and can go ask them, like, you know, hey, this person was banned and the reasons that were given are very vague and not very believable and it's causing consternation. You know, can you explain it and then allow them to sort of you know, uh, do what you did as a public editor and sort of e- explain it and, and even say, like, I think this was the wrong move, or they should have, you know, been more transparent, or the, the policy should be clearer, or whatever it might be. You know, do you think that that is a role that, that could exist or should exist in the social media world? Because I don't, I don't think it really
1: does right now. I think it, it could be useful. I think it could be really interesting. I mean, you, you, you make a great point when you say, given the amount, the volume, Uh, and the number of users you know, that creates, uh, that creates some real issues. So I don't think you could sort of have one person, uh, but you could have a team, you could have a department, you know, um, there would need to be real independence. And that is something that the New York times did very, very well with its public editor. And I include myself in that is that there, I had complete independence. No one ever said to me, you may not publish that or, um, I'm going to edit that line out of it. You know, there has to be independence. So, I think that that's, you know, there's there's still a chance to do that. Um the this, the the story of social media is not, you know, put to bed. So, I think it could be a good experiment and an interesting innovation and I think it would be it it could be and probably would be somewhat useful.
0: Yeah. I wonder almost if um, you know, Facebook has their their oversight board. Um which they're they're careful to say is is a separate a totally separate entity, though people question that as well. But I, I wonder almost if if Facebook sees the oversight board as that kind of role. I, I think it's very different. And it's sort of, you know, the metaphor that they use I, I think unfortunately is more like a you know, Supreme Court, uh,
1: <laughs> judicial. Oh, that that inspires confidence these days. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> what's the most politicized organization you can That's think it. of right now? Um, yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, it has some, it's a sort of a gesture in that direction, I guess, you know, we're going yeah. to be, we're, but I, I'm not, I'm not sure it really, I mean, for one thing, it's a board, it's a committee. And it's right. subject to the same problems that committees always have, uh, which is they, they can't they can't get anything done, and there's no cogent voice that comes out of it, and it's a big yes. mess. So um, I don't know about that. I mean, I guess it would probably be better to have. I mean, it'd be interesting. Maybe you wouldn't want to call it a public editor, but it would be interesting to have a sort of like a complaints department with some right. with some independence and with some transparency and some ability to then communicate to the user or to the public, um, in a prominent yeah. way. So.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just some sort of like user advocate, yep. uh, role. Right. Um, in, in some form or another. Yeah. Anyways, very, very interesting stuff. Um, you know, again, like I, I've followed your your work for a very long time. I love the book. Thank you. It's very, very interesting. Um, you know, I think- It's called I Newsroom like- Confidential.
1: Yes, Newsroom <laughs> Confidential.
0: <laughs> Search it up. Yeah. Uh, we'll have a link in, in the show notes as well, cool. uh, if you want to find it directly. Um, and uh, thank you for, for taking the time and, and having this discussion. Always I, great I- to talk with
1: you runs in both uh, directions.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Yes. Excellent. Always nice to hear. Yeah. Uh, great. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening as well. And we'll be back next week. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the cat. If we don't
1: stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the cat.